0: I always like the quizzes that test people's assumptions before you get into the storytelling. Something that we have quite a bit of back and forth on is the ethical and the
1: user sensitivity aspect of uh, using personalization and data. You know, the extent of what you can do sometimes can be perceived as creepy. I mean, you can be that creepy person at the party who knows your dog's birthday.
2: but I don't have anyone in the institution that I would say, is that a good idea? And sometimes I'm like, oh my God, is that a terrible idea?
3: We can innovate to our heart's content on our own websites, but we can't really innovate within others' platforms like Facebook.
4: Hi, I'm Kate Golden at the Walkley Foundation, and you're listening to a special edition of the Walkley Talks podcast, conversations recorded at Storiology, our 2016 journalism festival. This is a conversation about data, and how to make it personal. We had five of the best developers and data journalists from Australia and the US in one packed room at Storiology. Our moderator was ABC data journalist Simon Elvery. He makes all sorts of fun data-driven news things. He kicks things off with introductions.
3: Yes, so, uh, thanks for filling the house, that's excellent, there's a lot of people here, appreciate it. Um, I'll just start with introductions. Um, Right down the end, uh, we've got Kavya Sukumar. Kavya is an engineer on Vox Media's storytelling tools team, where she works with all Vox Media brands, including uh, Vox, The Verge, SB Nation, and Recode. Uh, After more than six years in the tech industry, she switched careers to journalism, and on a whim, apparently, and has not looked back since. Caviar uh, describes herself rather uh, impressively, you can see up there actually, I think, as a developer with a journalism habit, which is a description I love because it sort of describes me as well. Uh, next on the panel is Julia Smith. Uh, Julia is the design lead for the Institute for Nonprofit News, a nonpartisan journalism organization that provides services to hundreds of nonprofit newsrooms across the United States. At INN, Julia promotes, uh, produces custom editorial projects for INN's member organisations and helps support Largo, an open source WordPress framework for news websites. Before INN, Julia worked at the Centre for Investigative Reporting, where she was a Knight Mozilla Fellow and worked for RevealNews.org, um, a podcast I love, by the way, really excellent. Uh, and next on the panel is Inga Ting. Inga is the Sydney Morning Herald's uh, data journalist. Th- is that singular? The, the one data journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald? Yes, um, she specialises in number analysis and visual storytelling using interactive graphics. And last but not least, Edmund Tadros. Edmund runs the data visualisation section of the Australian Financial Review. He writes data-driven stories and creates uh, visualizations and interactive tools. He's an award-winning journalist based in the AFR's Sydney newsroom. Uh, so before we get uh, right into the discussion, I thought it would be probably worthwhile just um, describing a l- little what we're actually talking about today because it's a... B- I think in, in a lot of ways it's a bit of a new topic and I'm hoping our uh, tech guy can switch over the slides for us in a second. Um, so... It was described, I think, on the on the uh, program today as using personalization and interactivity to make data-heavy stories on dry topics, engaging, shareable, um, for bigger audience impact. And of course, they don't have to be, um, they're not always going to be dry topics, but um, it can help with dry topics, that's for sure. And. I thought it would be easiest to describe what we're actually talking about by just showing a quick example. And the example I've chosen, which I love, is um, a piece by Vox Media where they talk about uh, a survey that happens regularly in the US run by the federal government on teens' risky behaviour. And rather than um, what could have been a fairly dry standard write-up with a lead that looks at you know the most shocking kind of thing and then goes on from there using statistic after statistic, Uh, it's it's something different and you can choose which generation you live in and the the article adapts to that and makes it um, more relevant to you. and just, um, just before we get into the discussion as well, I've collected a few examples of the sorts of things we're talking about there. If you wanted to play along at home, I know some of you got uh, devices there. Feel free to throw that URL in and, and sort of have a look at the kinds of stories we're talking about and we might discuss some of those examples as well. So I thought I might uh, s- kick things off um, by just having a bit of a chat. Um, Kavya, uh, I know you didn't work directly on that um, piece for Vox, but um, maybe you could tell us a bit about the form that it took and how, how it came together and what other sorts of forms, maybe, um, these sorts of stories can take. Right.
1: Um, so my team worked on it, I, d- I wasn't personally involved in it. Uh, so as you said, this data that teens are le- have r- less risky behaviour today is rather dry. Uh, to, if we were to present it as is. And uh, it would, we are trying to do away with this idea that millennials are this terrible generation. And um, if you put it across as they are just less risky, you know, people tend to take it as, but you're not comparing it to my generation, we were much better behaved. And sort of bringing that uh, age element back into the uh, story itself was g- quantifying it, how much better they are than each generation. Uh, in uh, you know sort of breaking that data into uh, into a more uh, understandable pieces, I think uh, we did consider doing it doing it in multiple different ways, sort of like you know flowchart model or a quest model, and even a more visual something with you know a lot more bars and graphs and charts. But then in the end, uh, we decided that, you know, if we were not, we were going to do this in print, this would be a big block of text. You know, that's that's how we, we, we used to do long form storytelling. So how can we use that kind of, you know, narrative uh, formats, but still personalise it? And that's where this slider thing came about.
3: Yeah, that's a key, isn't it? Like there's still quite a bit of narrative built into the piece, but... Uh that addition of personalisation makes it, uh, for me, it made it much more me- memorable. You know, it it, it really highlights um, the way things have changed since I was a since I was a pesky teen. <laughs> um, so, you mentioned quizzes there, uh, and I I know that that's another common form of personalisation. It's sort of you know a story can start out with a quiz. I know Ed, you've done some um, sort of budgetary sort of. Yeah. Uh, personalization w- quizzes?
5: We've actually used the Vox autotune tool to, <laughs> to do. Yeah, so we've, um, we've done quizzes. Um, we had a weekly quiz for a while with GIFs on the financial review, which was a bit fun. Didn't quite have the uh, response I'd hoped for, but we've done budget quizzes and election quizzes and um, <coughs> financial market quizzes as well. And
3: do you, um, do you try and weave quizzes into a, a wider narrative or do they sit sort of alone?
5: Look, I, I tried it a few different ways. We tried um, we tried to do it topic specific and that sometimes works. It just depends if people are interested enough. Um, we tried it on a, the week that was. Mm-hmm. That, that seemed to work a bit better. So, you know, were you paying attention this week? And then lots of hard market questions that all our sort of readers would like.
3: Yeah, right. And, um, are there any, do, do either of you, Inga or Julia, have sort of other forms that you've seen these sorts of personalizations take?
0: Sure, um, well a- along the lines of quizzes too, I always like the quizzes that um, sort of test people's assumptions before you get into the storytelling. So not so much telling the story through through your quiz, um, but seeing where your reader is at, and then showing them what, what the actual facts are. Um, and there's other ways of doing that too, where I saw one just a couple weeks ago on the New York Times, where before they showed you the data in the story, they asked you to draw the bar chart yourself, or the line chart. Um, I think it was about just violent crime in the US, and it, and it asked you to draw it if you thought it like went up or if it went down. And then after you finish drawing the chart, um, it shows you what the actual stats are, so you can see like what you assumed versus reality, and that's that's a nice way to sort of personalize it as well.
3: Yeah, that's that's um, brings up another really interesting point. I think uh, often the starting point for this kind of personalization is a is something really basic, like it's a demographic, like it's an it's your age, or, or it's you know where you live or your income, if it's sort of a, you know, a, a budgety sort of thing. But that's a really interesting one as well, pre, preconceived ideas as a way to personalise, um, personalise data stories. Uh, are there any other um, sort of metrics, I guess, which you could use for personalization?
2: I've seen recently some really great maps that um, are kind of like, I guess it's a little bit like the way we would map census data or any other demographic data, but they combine those demographic statistics to make it almost like a hyper-personalised thing where instead of saying mapping people by age or by income or by ethnicity or language, they combine all of those things. So then you will look... You know, It's almost like getting down to your peers. You can look for, like, um, like an Asian woman in the 30s who speaks this language and has this income and that, and you go, oh, well, that's me and, I, and I'm just like all these people here or I live around all of the same kinds of people and I just hang out with people who are exactly like me. That's terrible. Or like, there they are. They're over there. <laughs> like that sort of thing. And I, think, I thought that was really interesting because I guess to me it points out those little enclaves that you get or the way some, some groups are not at all like that and, and they don't. You know, s- some groups is completely spread out.
3: Yeah, I remember seeing a piece by I think the New York Times where they did a really um, fine-grained demographic breakdown map of of Long Island or you know the area around um, Central New York, and and um, but I don't recall actually. Whether I had to select something or whether there was a, a a real personalization element, but adding that in would really add something to that. Yeah, minute. and
2: I think it would make it easier for you to find stuff because sometimes I think the personalization thing is just about helping the reader to find what they want in a different way. And I think like we've kind of experimented with different ways of doing that. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, for me personally, like I started doing more explaining in my stories, the way I actually write the text and saying. Or, or making a chart and having a headline that tells you a standout stat that you might find interesting, but then in the tagline under it saying, you know, this, this chart, for instance, shows the distribution. A bump means that there is a lot more people doing that. Or, you know, this is scatterplot, if you see the line moving to the right and, and up, it means this. If it moves left and down, it sees this. So, kind of teaching people how to read charts or read visualizations, which I, I, I don't know if that works. I don't know if people hate it, but, I, <laughs> but I, I just thought it was a better way of doing it because instead of dumping the chart in front of them and people, I mean, it, ev- I think everyone does this and I do this as well, even though I look at data all day, I see a chart and I'm like, what is that? And it, it takes me a moment. And I know that if people, if I'm speaking to people about it, that's how I would explain it to them at the pub or at my desk or whatever. I'd be like, well, this is what we're looking for. You see a pattern like this or you see a shape like this, it tells you this. And then people kind of go, "Oh, okay, I get. I'm oriented now, and I can go much deeper into that story."
4: Yeah, uh,
0: uh,
3: there's there's a s- sort of always a tension, I think, or a, a a bit of a dichotomy between the idea of an exploratory, purely exploratory interface, and something that's m- much more directed and narrative driven. And finding sort of the middle ground can be really helpful, I think. Do, have you found that as well?
1: Yeah, th- I think there's this. Thin line between customization and personalization. Yeah. You know, it's uh, sometimes you just customize it. You know, it's not just demographic data; it's based on the device you read on, and that's something that we do always. You know, we don't often load the same thing on phones versus a desktop experience, and that's customization. And you can go one step further and personalize things based on you know what time you read. You probably would want to give a, a digest version if you're on a morning commute, versus you know. I mean, those are things that can be done. Uh, a couple of years ago, Verge, The Verge did this piece on fanboyism. And uh, based on what device you opened it on, you actually got the styling of that device. You know, so if you opened it on a Windows PC, uh, you would get the Windows Metro feel. And uh, if you opened it on a Mac, you'd get the, you know, the, the uh, iconic uh, Mac feel of it. And I mean, that's, that's customization. But at the same time, you know, it's sort of a personalized experience for you. Uh, so there are, there are things like that that are not generally uh, demographic information, but that can be used to sort of narrow down the story for you.
5: Um, oh, what I, what I found is that um, for a lot of our readers, they just want to find out the data that specifically matters to them. So we'll have a story that's a normal sort of news story about whatever's the headline result or the thing changing or the major thing, but they don't care. They just want to find, you know, what's happening in their suburb, if it's house prices or if it's university employment rates, they want to find out what is happening at the uni they've gone to or they're thinking of going to. So it's this thing of you kind of having your cake and eating it too. If Nowadays, you can, you do the story that you would always do, but, you know...
3: You can sort of make the one story relevant to a much yeah. wider audience rather yeah. than, than you as a journalist, choosing the focus of of the piece. So that
5: Vox one is brilliant because you're kind of, um, that's going the next step in making the actual story bespoke, but um, I would have assumed you'd have a normal sort of, you still need a sort of three-par news story as well. It goes, this has happened or, um, but you allow people to do the both because I think most people, if they're they're interested, they'll read all the way through, but most people get about four pars in and go, okay, I kind of get it. And then they're either going to look for something specific to them or head off to the next article.
3: So Ed, uh, I, I um, noticed you mentioned before that you've used some of the tools that yep. Kavya's worked on, um, and I thought that'd be an interesting topic to explore as well, because there are doing these sorts of stories does take some specialist skill, um, uh, and I wonder uh, whether or where you think that skill set should sit inside an organisation, and and and. and How that works together with the traditional skills of
5: journalism all right? Um, I kind of like the Vox model (laughs) to be honest (laughs) Um, so look I Think in an ideal sense you'll have a journal who knows doesn't they don't need to know how to code but they need to kind of know the mechanics of it and what's possible and what's not possible to do with data and and that person should sit in the newsroom hopefully with a front-end developer and maybe a you know a database person as well and you know, sit with the expert, so the, the rounds person or the political reporter, and do stories in collaboration with them. It doesn't work when they're off in a corner, I don't think.
3: Yeah, I, I, I kind of made a little bit of fun of it earlier, Tinga, but at you being, the, uh, you know, the only data journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald, is that, is that a fair thing to say or is, is you know, do you work with a, closely with a team of um, developers or uh, other people who kind of bring that skill set right into the newsroom?
2: Um, yeah, it's a bit hard. I mean, I think for us, it's quite separate. Like, we have a group, we have great developers and designers and they sit in the presentation team, the art team, and it's, and it's quite separate even physically from the journos. Um And I sit a little bit um, between that or away from everybody, depending how you look at it. And it can, and it can be difficult, I think, because and I was just asking, um, Carvey and Julia as well, I was like, do you have a team? <laughs> like, Tell me about your team. Um, and it is hard because I think, as Ed was saying, the, the coding side is difficult to understand for people who don't have any idea about it. And then I think as well for the developers, when journalists come to them with these very tight deadlines and just say, just make, can you just make this thing? And they don't actually share the story because I think so much of the design and customization of a project is about what is the story that you want to tell like you have especially with data you can tell a million stories which is why the personalization is so great because you are telling a million stories in one story but you know you, you need to bring the design and the customization in quite early ideally at the begin- very beginning of your conceptualization I think to be able to get the most out of it so I find a lot of it of my job is is going between the two and sort of saying you you ha- don't have enough time for this or you know can you get more time
3: the the, the time thing is really interesting because it, these things do, as they do take specialized skill they also do take quite a bit of time often and and i think there's uh, a temptation to templatize uh, or, or make tools and they can be really valuable and julia i wonder whether you've got some insight on this because you sort of work on these sorts of tools for storytelling all the time do you think? Um, we can make tools that help us tell personalized stories um, and make that kind of tool available wider within the newsroom?
0: I I think there's definitely opportunities there, especially for the the simpler things like quizzes and um, basic charts, those sorts of ideas. Um, You can pop in too if if you have any. (laughs) But um, for the the larger, more personalized stories, or the more custom ones, I think those are sort of difficult, but you could probably, you know, come up with tools that um, help with the pipeline. Like if you have like a basic set of demographic information or other things that you're reading in. um, So just like your analytics and and really streamline like the pipeline of your data that you use for personalization um, and use that to build tools on. I think there's opportunity there as well.
5: Actually, um, the other tool I really like from Box is the flowcharting one. So, so we, we we've used that a few times. Um, you know, how much super do you have compared with people who are your age and your gender and your um, income level, that sort of thing. And and you can see people um, staying on the story for another you know minute or so as they click through it and then go back and test out a few things. So, um, the other uh, I actually think the other one is um, just even a table of sortable, searchable data. Um, if you're at the fin, that's that's enough really for most of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's and the more numbers, the, the better, opinions, and the longer, yeah, like they'll they'll sit there and sort through that all day. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, going back to your question about you know building tools, we at Walks are lucky to have this differentiation between platform developers and storytelling developers. And I personally think most of the infrastructure work should be done by the platform developers. You know that shouldn't be something that's pushed onto uh, the new apps developers who are trying to, you know, do the editorial side of the storytelling and not build the infrastructure that allows you to do the storytelling. So, but at the same time, you could, you know, do the presentation bit, like the quizzes and the flowcharts, but not the data collection and uh, manipulation right. part should be a bigger infrastructure project.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, part of my experience uh, working at the ABC, we, the team I work on, often we find we end up building tools like we'll build something for a single story and it runs so well and people like it so much that it ends up kind of morphing into a tool and we end up possibly having to support it and do you does Vox have a process for I I imagine you have similar kind of scenarios does Vox have a process for moving those projects from um, the storytelling team to the infrastructure team
1: So we recently had this beggary org of, you know, we are in the process of figuring out what the ideal team makeup for doing, you know, tools kind of projects are. But what we've been doing is we have an alpha team that sort of ideates and creates the beta version, the alpha team that creates a beta version of the uh, product. And another team stabilizes it and another team maintains it. So that's kind of been the process. And I mean, we are lucky to have that you know the big infrastructure of having being able to pipe through the uh, tool to uh, stable you know the, the st- based on the stability of the tool but often we do get a lot of support request and that uh, that does take a lot of time uh, it, at least in the initial phases when uh, a lot of you know user errors happen and uh, or user assumptions that we hadn't accounted for happens
5: how do you decide to go from um a beta to you know an actual tool like is there is
1: there a benchmark
3: or... and, and is there is there buy-in required from those down the line um teams before it sort of moves on
1: so we do have some really amazing program managers who kind of abstract it away from me so i'm just told that it is good to go to beta but then for most part we do have a really good uh, uh, QA team. So things go through an entire QA process where they try it out on all devices and uh, uh, platforms in, you know, all use cases. And we have eight newsrooms. So that's, that's, that in itself is a big QA process, you know, eight newsrooms into how many of our devices. That's uh, usually a week, week-long process getting it QA'd. Uh, From alpha to beta itself is just a proof of concept. You know, does this work as a tool? Is there a need for it? Uh, Should we invest more time in building this? Uh, Often what happens is you build a one-off thing and you get this request for doing more of those. That's when you know that you need to templatize it or make it a tool.
3: So I'm I'm really pleased you mentioned the word platform there because it leads uh, very neatly into the next thing I wanted to talk (laughs) about. Um, There's been a bit of discussion already over the last couple of days, I think, about... uh, From a different angle about the the idea of news being off platform and you know the journalism industry being in the post website era um and i i wonder how any of you really at open question how how you feel this sort of work fits into that paradigm because um we can innovate to our heart's content on our own websites, but we can't really innovate within others' platforms like Facebook or Snapchat or whatever it might be. So, do you have a feel for how we should move that forward? Hard question, sorry. There's really, I mean, there's not much to do, is there? Um,
5: that can be done. Oh, look, I, I kind of, um, some two ways about it. Uh, the longer i do this the more i'm in favor of just a really nice flat graphic that tells a clear like all things being equal, if you have a nice single chart in there you're probably good to go so that sort of fits on whatever platform and um and if you've got something extra like an interactive or a tool then that that should all things being equal attract people back to your site so hopefully you can sort of is there
3: scope for personalization in that sort of flat graphic world do you think
5: um Oh, yeah, I think so, yeah, because, I mean, often it'll, um, like, we'll do charts that are a horizontal bar graph of, you know, uh, employment rates by uni, by course, Mm -hmm. and you can just, that's just a simple chart and people can just scan down for what, so that's, I I think that's, I mean, journalists have been doing that for years. It's about
3: making the... the the structure of the article or the graphic legible. Yeah,
5: yeah, as long as, because um, I think most of the platforms will take graphics, just not anything that does anything interesting, right? Yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that how uh, it works? Yeah, that's, that's my feel. Yeah,
3: yeah. I see you're sort of nodding along there, <laughs> Julia. Uh,
0: um, one thing that we've done with uh, the news apps that we build, which are often just sort of big databases that people can filter and get information, and that sort of thing. Um, but one thing that we've had success with as far as platforms go, is being able to filter that data and then share the filtered bit, or share the piece that's personalized to you, um, like what you filtered down. So the example I'm thinking of was an app for the Chicago Reporter about police misconduct data, and you could filter it down by um, neighborhood and by like gender, by weapon use, like whatever piece of information you were actually interested in, in sharing or just in learning about, and then, um, you could share those individual pieces, like the pieces that um, that you care about. You can share that with your following. Um, <laughs> 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 so, so, so that way, it's on the platform, and, and it is the personal piece that you and your friends care about more than just the app in general.
3: Yeah, that's a great point. So you're, you're sort of leveraging the, the natural uh, social network effects. Um, yeah,
2: yeah, excellent. I wonder about that sometimes, though, because I, I started thinking about this and thinking, like, I'm not entirely sold on the personalization method for all things, and I guess there's a lot of different ways to do it, but sometimes in the rush of the newsroom, and I think, you know, you can, great you, like everyone's been saying, you can build these great tools, it comes down to time. A lot of the time, the editor will just be like, well, there's no time to do all of it, so let's just do a tool that people can play with because this you know, this is kind of fun and it's new and um, you can see why it would draw people. But sometimes I think it's a real shame when you have a very rich data set to just make a tool that spits out only what one person is interested in. And I don't know that that always fulfills what you should be doing as a data journalist or any journalist, which is, like I think, especially data journalism, you want to be showing people how to read numbers and what to do with a data set.
3: It takes away from the ability to present a narrative to a reader.
2: Yeah, and also just to help people become familiar with data and, the, and to read it and not be afraid of it and not think it, it is heavy and dry all the time and that it can't be engaging if it's, if it's complex and nuanced. And yeah, I think a really important role for data journalists is to, to teach people that and teach other journalists that and newsrooms and because we, li- we live in a data heavy world, like it's, it's getting worse. So, yeah, we should get out there and embrace it, I think. And people are intelligent. There's lots of people who will say, well, what about this part of the data? Or, you know, why did you do something this way? Like, one of the things I love about the data journalism community is that it's it's open. A lot of the time, you should be putting your data out there and your work can be checked by other people. And I'll often get people tweeting and saying, well, why did you do that? Or, like, can you send me the data? Because I'm keen to play with it. I'll be like, okay. Um, And I think that richness is something that audiences like if you can um, do it in, in an engaging narrative. Mm. Um, yeah. I guess it just worries me if you, if you hide everything behind an interface.
3: Yeah, I, but but again, I, I, I think that comes back to um, the limitations of the platforms we're talking about, right? Like it, we can really do that rich interface on, on our own websites, but when we have yeah, to play right. in the world of... Um, Facebook etc it, it, it does make things a little bit harder doesn't it
5: what, what happens to the ABC stuff like um, your budget uh, your election analysis do they do, can they even go on amp and the other platforms or
3: uh, no essentially right. yeah that's okay. is, is, is right. the answer <laughs> um, so um, maybe it's worth giving a little bit of background uh, on amp since you mentioned it so amp is uh, accelerated mobile pages, which is a technology by Google, which is intended to kind of speed up the internet. And Facebook has an equivalent, which you might have seen called Facebook Instant Articles. And it's kind of like a limited subset of uh, the functionality that you can get on your own website on the internet using HTML and JavaScript. So, uh, you know, over time, the kinds of some of the sorts of tools we're talking about will make it into those technology platforms. But it's it means that individual newsrooms can't necessarily innovate in the same way that that we're used to doing, I yeah, guess.
5: And it, and it means that Facebook and um, Google are deciding, <laughs> they're effectively vetoing the things you can and can't show readers. So. Mm. Um, I get why they're doing it because they I mean they don't like the way journals program essentially they're trying to clean they're trying to clean everything up and make sure the stories load faster and but um at the same time it's kind of well all you're doing is words and pictures so you're actually sending us back you know what twenty years when everyone's been trying to do all these special effects and you create a platform then that doesn't show them so, so
3: this this uh, actually dovetails fairly neatly into uh, another point that somebody raised with me earlier in the week when I was discussing this topic. What, do we know this works? Do we know it's worth it? Do we know that you know, personalising um, a data story has payoff?
5: Uh, oh, well, it does, <laughs> it, it does at the fin. Like um, if, if you get something that's a, uh, and I've seen this, right? It'll be a database with a two line write off and people will spend you know, two, three minutes in there looking around for stuff on average. and. I'll just keep going there, It'll be a really nice graphic that says, um, you know, um, employment rates for graduates are the worst on record, and you only need a three-part par- write-off, and that's enough. Like I think it does work, and then if you allow people to click through for their course or their
1: uni. You
3: know. Yeah, anecdotally, I, I feel like it's it, it's clear that it does work. I mean, the Vox example that we gave earlier is a really clear one to me. I mentioned earlier, it makes it much more memorable. Um, so. Do you have any um, data on it Caviero?
1: Uh, I don't have clear numbers but what we've seen as a pattern that works is when you have a complex data set using personalization as a launch pad for people to explore this data in more in detail so kind of like you know narrowing it down and giving this here is what you could get in the end of it uh, and then letting and uh, giving an open option to you know sort of adjust the levers and see, how uh, different options bring out different uh, outcomes is something that's worked. Instead of just opening up this, you know, there's a, here's a whole bunch of controls and you have no idea what this does, starting with a small personalized, personalized option and then opening it up uh, seems to work more towards the whole explanatory part of, you know, the brand that that
5: um, seems quite intuitive too so if it's really complex I'll come back to it and do lots of different <laughs> angles and some of them might be personalized some of them might just be I'm interested in this particular bit of it so and, and I guess that's from the feedback from the personalization is that
1: um, often from analytics feedback sometimes from just you know uh, people in the newsroom themselves give you feedback of you know I think the story needs a bit more yeah. treatment uh, that we could do this in a Slightly different way and see if that resonates better with our audience. Uh, some some topics are just evergreen and it, you just have to do it over and over again till you know it hits um, everybody. So some some of the topics that we sort of iterate over quite a bit is uh, presidential candidates, tax policies. You know that's it. It just we've probably done like ten different versions of you know how you can customize it and personalize it and put in your income and see how different uh, candidates' tax policy uh, when they reveal it, which they often don't. It's a very (laughs) cloaked uh, idea of tax policy, but yeah.
2: Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to what Kari's saying goes back a bit to that question you asked earlier about um, the exploratory data versus that sort of tight narrative that takes you through. And I think a while back, Um, it was much more focused on exploratory data and these massive beautiful visualizations and interactives that allowed you to dive right into it and you could get you could do anything you wanted really with the data Um, but I feel like I mean I've certainly pulled back from that um, and that was mainly because I felt that people were disoriented when they got there and if you didn't tell them what they might possibly find. They were like, I can't find it. I can't, I can't do this. Like you literally, if you, because I think about some of the stories that I might spend weeks on if I'm lucky, and I know that data set inside out, and someone who gets there, like if you think the average time on an article is like a minute or something, or a minute 30, you can't understand that in a minute. Like it looks cool, and, be, and then often you'll sort of get them in, like you'll see them land on the page, and you see that in the stats, but the amount of time <coughs> that they're spending there doesn't tell me that they're doing anything. Um, And I think it's overwhelming. So now I've moved way back from doing that. And now, rather than going big picture to small, now I I will go from small to big and say, you know, these are the things that I found um, interesting. This is what I liked. Um, And as I do that, I'll take them through, it can be static graphs as well, because they're just as effective as in some circumstances, and say, this is how you read it. This is what I thought was interesting. And then at the end, I might embed an exploratory graphic rather than it used to be at the top. And I think, I mean, it's hard to track those stats because we don't really, some of the embedded ones are hard to track, the related assets you can track more easily in the web stats, but it does suggest that more people are going down the page. Um, And I do think that the stats show that more people play with those exploratory ones after you've shown them that there is something at the end of the tunnel.
5: So you've kind of stripped
2: it back and then, yeah. Yeah, stripped it back, take people through step by step and then say, now you can explore if you want, rather than saying, here's all this stuff, it looks amazing. And they're like, wow, it's pretty i'm leaving now
1: yeah. <laughs> it's interesting what the end goal of personalization is right because i think there are two options one is this increasing the understanding itself which is uh, which isn't quite a tangible thing to measure but there's always the engagement bit which is the more measurable part the less noble you know getting people to just click on your uh, article but that's more measurable and i think that's sort of seen a big spike based on how personalised you can get, but the understanding bit is still an open question.
3: Well, thanks, everyone. I think that's a fairly good place to wrap up the formal discussions and sort of open it to the floor for some questions. If anyone's got any? I guess my question's
0: around um, apps and data journalism, so native apps particularly maybe in data journalism and what the, the panel's ideas are there, because we've talked a lot about web tools, I think, but there's obviously another whole... Uh, engagement piece particularly with the AFR maybe on um, you know on on that app engagement?
5: We haven't really looked at apps Uh, that's probably like that's that that's something I I, I don't know how to do and um, you have a domain app and you have things like that but um, most of the most of the stuff we do could you make an app out of it there are there are a couple of things you could probably make an app out of Um, I don't know if you'd get enough traffic to justify the amount of time you'd put into it uh, sorry, what do you mean then? I'm putting, not the,
0: putting the interactive content into the apps where the apps already exist. So,
5: sorry, do you have an example of that? I'm not quite sure. Yeah. So okay.
0: obviously, the AFR have an app. Yeah. Um, some of which is people basically reading the paper, um, as well as uh, reading you know more <coughs> digital type stories. So, d- more so like you
5: apps. mean the AFR um, iPad yeah. app? Yes. Oh, so all the interactives already turn up in those things. And and yeah, so that that's a. That's normal part well, there's of there's additional things,
0: obviously, on the native side. So that was kind of what I was alluding to that could be done, because there's speech recognition. There's a whole heap of other abilities. That oh, are I see.
5: Right. Adding in extra features into yeah, the apps. That's yeah. That's um, right. Oh, look. <laughs> I think with our app, like, if you, if you are getting a good experience, like the website, that's, that's good for us at the moment. Yeah. So.
2: I mean, at the SMH, I mean, so we have the iPad app, and we would design anything. Everything we design must go on all of the apps. And um, that's a pain in the ass because <laughs> the mobile screen is tiny and the iPad screen is giant. Um, but it's, it's interesting. I feel like we've moved a little bit away from the iPad um, and that is where you would get a lot of a, a better, or almost uh, richer um, interactive experience because it's a bigger screen and people tend to consume that in a different way. They spend more time on it. Um, but it is. I think it does come down to that question of is the customization to that platform, to that um, particular device worth um, the amount of time that it would take? And I feel like we've almost moved away from separating them. We used to separate them more, I think, um, but found that it didn't, yeah, it didn't, it didn't really pay off almost. That might change in future, when we, you know, as, as skills become different, but that's my take on it.
3: Another question? Uh,
0: look, this question is about barriers and I'd be, particularly interested in the the journalists uh, on the panel who are in established institutions. Um, Do the general newsroom get what you're trying to do with big data and personalisation and the value for audience? Do you still face barriers there? Um, Where are we at in a broader sense?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, why not? I'll take a look. Um, I think, uh, by and large, the people in newsrooms definitely see the value in this. That's my experience. I feel like the barriers are usually um, organizational or infrastructural, um, and so yeah, I think it's a fairly common frustration uh, to to have ideas that go beyond the current ability to implement. Um, that that's what I've found. Does that sort of chime with any of your experiences?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I, I think it is really hard. I think. There's a lot of enthusiasm for the end product and not much understanding of how it gets done. Um, and bo- from, from, any, from from almost conception, because you can sit there with a spreadsheet and some people can't open it. They're like, well, what is this file? Um, I'm like, it's a spreadsheet. And, and that's scary because it's like, wow, we're gonna have to work for weeks to get to this customized thing that you want, like you have a dream of this great app. Um, But it's really difficult, and I think there's now... Our newsroom is learning more about time needed to do coding and design, but I think there's still... I feel like there's um, not a lot of understanding of data analysis in numbers. So what the hell I have done with the spreadsheet that they couldn't open and then all the work that goes into analysing it calculations, how have I made decisions on methodology, like why did I leave certain things out? And these are just decisions, and that's what's difficult about not being in a team. Decisions that I make, and I will uh, will always discuss them with an academic or something like that, but I don't have anyone in the institution that I would say, is that a good idea? And sometimes I'm like, oh my God, is that a terrible idea? Will I get ripped apart for this when it goes to publication? And it's different with different journals. Some journals will take a real interest in it and say, why did you do that, or how have you done that? And other journals, no idea they, they want to see an end product and then they'll write four paths to sit with it so it is i think it is difficult and i think there needs to be more of an understanding of that at, at higher levels as well because i think it's of, often the reporters that have a better understanding and not the editors which is even worse i think
1: Some, something that we have quite a, back, a bit of back and forth on is the ethical and the user sensitivity aspect of uh, using personalization and data you know what technology can do is not necessarily right you know, you, the extent of what you can do is sometimes can be perceived as creepy. I mean, you can be that creepy person at the party who knows your dog's birthday. Uh, just don't be that. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it's often that discussion on like, you know, where, what is acceptable and what is the user comfortable with. I mean, we are desensitized to having things uh, personalized for us, but then it is always good to have that assumptions be explicit and that's something that's and, and
3: letting the user have control as well like some of right. these things we could do automatically and that can be creepy as well right, right. anyway <laughs> uh next question yes
0: hi yes i work at a university and we present a lot of research to journalists so i'm just wanting to make your life easier and their life easier in terms of often we have you know, <laughs> research articles and they haven't really been crunched is there anything you'd suggest to make that all easier i mean i suppose we shouldn't Preempt too much but I'm just wondering about presenting data or information I, to I'm, you I'm
3: I'm going to start here if that's all right uh give us the data <laughs> in, a, in it's like in a relatively raw form and explain it to us I I find often when I'm I'm dealing with um, not necessarily researchers but talent talent generally um they don't want to give us the data or they don't think it's a thing they should or could do so
2: agree with that and I think um, a lot of the time I will end up going to a researcher and having quite a long chat with them on the phone to convince them that I know what they're saying and they'll say, you know, but here this is an average and you know an average mask. I'm like, yes. And that's great that they explain it I understand why researchers are very suspicious of journalists and giving over their data because we do terrible things with it sometimes. But <laughs> I think, I mean, and that goes back to sort of um, old school journalism t- tools of like you need to build contacts and you need to build trust and you need to you tell stories fairly. Um, but, yeah, we are in a, a data-centred world, and I think um, if you can find a journalist and a news organisation that you trust, you, you should be open to giving the data because we can do lots of things with it, and it is about storytelling. And while, you know, you might think something's um, the story, we might find something else that, that also leads to the same story but does it in a different way. And it's very, I find it very hard to do that when I don't, I don't see the data because I'm like, I don't, I don't know what else is in there. I don't, I don't know what you've hidden or you know if there's another meaning in it. Yeah. That's my take.
5: Yeah,
2: that's pretty straightforward the, the data. Yeah. <laughs> in a spreadsheet, not a PDF, please. Like yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so how how do you guys think that um journalists across the newsroom who are not specifically in a data role should engage with data and, um, you know, they get sent survey results, which may or may not have a good sample size, etc. cetera. Um, and I think a lot of uh, journalists kind of consider themselves word per- people and fear it or take it at face value or, you know, how, how, how can they kind of skill up? And on a related note, what is a good sample size for a survey so I can tell the PRs to go away when it's too low? <laughs> um, I think what... Yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of my job is working with journalists who really don't like numbers at all. And, I mean, I quite like that because I, lo- I love numbers and I don't come from a coding background or a design background. I come from a journalism background. And I think I, it goes a little bit um, to the question about tools. It's like in, in our newsroom, more and more of the journalists are being expected or at least asked to make their own charts and make their own... Um, make, yeah, at least some of the interactives that go into their stories. And that requires you to really engage with those numbers and know not to just take something out of a paper and dump it in. Um, I think I think, I, think it's, I guess I'm, I'm thinking about it from the point of view of the journalists don't really have a lot of time. But I think some of the things um, that they can do is maybe read more of the method, methodology of how a survey is done. And it's probably even more boring. It will turn them off data even more but <laughs> but it's about understanding what the numbers actually tell you what can they tell you um, and and then thinking about how from a consumer point of view how would you consume that if if you had a bunch of numbers in text just shot at you would you actually read those pars? or will it look better if you put it into a bar chart or and I think the, one of the basic things that I usually tell journalists is like you can cut these entire paths of numbers out of your text which gives you more text to to work on analysis and comment and insight like that and just put it into a graph because people do not, I don't think, that I don't think people want to read a paragraph that's just um, numbers. It's its far easier to look at a chart or a map. So it's a bit different. <laughs> at <the Fin>. People <laughs> like reading
5: <laughs> enticed. Um, so uh, the, the Fin's a bit different in that um, most of the people are quite numerate because they've either worked in the markets or... They're working on stories where there are numbers involved, and the numbers are at the heart of it. And if you a good headline at the fin, will have a really big number in it, basically. Um, <laughs> but but to answer your question about surveys, um, I think a lot of it's common sense. Like you know. Um, at, when I first started at the Fin, I really got into writing about all the statistics about, you know, margins of error and confidence intervals, and all the editors did was cut it out because no one wants to read about that. Like, you know, what I mean, like, you just write it. Um, if if the question kind of makes sense or, I mean, it's a little bit of sort of common sense um, to, in that, and I think most journals will get that if you just go, look, does that, if you ask that question, are, are you getting a sensible result out of it? And if it's got a, you know, I don't know, 500 to 1,000 people and it's, Normally distributed, you should be okay if it's saying something quite extreme. uh, uh, You know, quite clear. Um, And I I don't think that requires much education on the part of the journal. And and they'll know, right? If it's their area, they'll know if that's a misleading survey or not. I think intuitively, or they'll go and ask people and find out. So it's a little bit you would just treat it like any other thing you get told and go and either, if you're not able to verify yourself, you just do all the normal journal things. (coughs) You go and ring up all your contacts. You go and ask the person who, you know, how'd they they, um, do the survey. Like you just do all the normal sort of checks you would do for any type of story. I don't think it changes just because it's got numbers in it. All the numbers are as a tip off that this may may or may not be interesting. It's sort of, you're at the beginning of the process that it's the exact normal process. I don't think it ever changes really. No, it's the same. Yeah, you just happen to have some numbers at the beginning of it instead of someone giving you a document or someone telling you something. You've got some numbers and, yeah.
3: Excellent. Another question up the back.
0: Um, Hi. Um, If you're a freelancer or working for a small outlet that doesn't have their own developer team, um, are there, and this might be a question for Julia, are there easy-to-access tools that you can either suggest or actually get familiar with using and do your own... And what? Um, sure. <laughs> um, I, I mean, Auto-Tune <laughs> from Box is, is a really great open source tool um, that you can use to make repeatable charts, quizzes, flowcharts, that sort of thing. Um, there's also just, I mean, there's a handful of open source libraries. If you want basic like maps and things, Google Maps, um, they, they allow like geo projections and those sorts of things that you can do. Um, what am I missing?
1: So there's a Twitter account called News Nerd Repos, uh, yes. News Nerd Repositories, News Nerd Repos. Uh, they do a good sum up, sum up of like good uh, you know journalism related open source tools. Uh, that's that could be a useful. If you
5: it. can't program, there's things like Infogram, Tableau. Um, yeah data wrapper you can just make simple graphs and charts in that and that, that a lot of the time is is good enough if it's a simple story that just needs a few charts that you want to sort of you know put a bit of bling on and you don't need to program it all you just need to know basic excel or spreadsheets yep
3: oh, we've got a couple of minutes left so any more questions
2: Um, which tracks all the police killings in the USA, right? Killings by police or in the USA. Mm-hmm. Um, w- what do you think of those large-scale products? Because sometimes some they'll be hugely successful or well, you can give the Panama Papers database and, you know, the people, people don't really look at it. Big story, but the actual database, how many people are really going through it, you know, besides journals. Um, I mean, I think The Guardian does a really great job of taking people through their data sets and presenting them in a beautiful way. And so I think you do, they do a great job of having that exploratory data interactive and they give everything over, which is also great um, sort of ethical practice and data practice to have your work checked and to crowdsource uh, more information and to really involve the audience. But they still, they still do what I was talking about before, I think, which is to tell you the story in, this, in the same way that a, any journalist would um, but with more visuals and things like that uh, because if you do dump, you know, 2,000 reports on the audience and you don't take them through it, it's, it's overwhelming. I mean, those journalists would have had weeks and months to look through it and to really get their head around it and they'll still have, and, and, it's, and that's the work, the, the horrible, the worst grant work of the data journalism is to understand the data and to clean it for people so that when they get in there, they're not looking at a bunch of junk, which is probably what you were looking at. So if we take the Daru release from, was it yesterday or two days ago that The Guardian did, they amalgamated certain character, um, categories like uh, self-harm and threatened self-harm or suicidal ideation because that made sense logically, and that was not how the data was presented. So even those exploratory visualizations are clean and are... Um, are still presented in a journalistic way, because those are journalistic decisions, those ones, about what information is relevant, where is the story, um, what, what tells you about the world. Those are journalistic questions as much as data questions in the, in, in the kind of practice of implementing it and cleaning it. But if, that's not something you would leave to a data scientist, for instance, because they're like, well, well I, that's, I'll, I'll clean it and I can make these, these, work these numbers. But it's always in your mind, I think, what are we actually saying? What does this say? What is the story about this data? And so I think with those data sets, you still need to take people through it because you're still a journalist. You must tell a story and you must do it in an engaging way. That's my take.
3: Uh, Thank you, everyone. I think we've run out of time. So um, thank you very much for participating and um, it was fun.
4: You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast, conversations from Storiology. You can subscribe on Stitcher or iTunes or SoundCloud if you like it, rate it on iTunes, or consider chucking us a few dollars at walkleys.com donate. If you are a geek about data journalism or you want to be, check out our series on the Walkley magazine, Box, where people like Simon write about data journalism. And if you want to hear more about what the Walkley Foundation is up to, sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe. Walkley Talks is produced by me, Kate Golden, for the Walkley Foundation at the two S.E.R. studios in Sydney, Australia. Catch you next time.